Today we talk about hydrosalpinks. What is it? Have you diagnosed it? And what should you do about it? I'm Dr. Mark Amos, and this is Taco About Fertility Tuesday. You may have heard this term, hydrosalpinks. Sometimes some people call it hydrosalpinges, or sometimes it was just call it a swollen tube. But in the end, they're all the same thing, which is a hydrosalpinks, which means fluid-filled tube. What I'm going to do is talk about hydrosalpinks from the standpoint of what it is. I'm going to talk about how do you diagnose it, what's the treatment for it, what's its impact on your fertility. And when you should even consider removing your fallopian tubes. So why should you even care about hydrosalpinks? Well, the reason why is because if you have one and you're going through IVF, having one will reduce your chances of IVF working by 50% and will increase your risk of a miscarriage by double. Those are scary numbers. So let's talk about what is it? So as I mentioned, simply, It's a tube filled with fluid. Now your fallopian tube connects to your uterus and then the ends of it are in the pelvis that surround the ovary and that's where it picks up the egg. Now sometimes the end of that tube can be scarred and can close up and then what happens is is that the part near the uterus is also kind of closed and it fills up with fluid. That fluid builds up and builds up and eventually the fallopian tube looks like a giant sausage. On ultrasound, it actually has what we call a serpentinous view where it looks like there's these parts going up and down with septums, and it's a very classic look. Sometimes it's diagnosed as cysts, but really it's a hydrosalpinx. These are usually caused due to some infection, whether it's pelvic inflammatory disease from chlamydia or gonorrhea, or even just surgery. Some infection usually causes it and creates the fallopian tube to club closing off the end of the fallopian tube, and then again, some type of restriction at the proximal portion of the tube as well. Outside of fertility, these can actually be very painful at times. Every time you have a period, if it's pushing blood with pressure into that area, it expands those fallopian tubes and causes pain. And so a lot of people after the fact will be like, oh yeah, I did have a lot of pain with all my periods. Now, outside of fertility, That's the concern. And some people will have them removed just because they're having pain, but other people may not have any pain at all, may not even know they have them. And so incidentally, they'll have a surgery and they'll go, oh yeah, your tube is swollen. Now for fertility, as we talked about, the impact on fertility is severe. It will reduce your chances of IVF working by 50% and increase your chances of miscarriages two times. Now, what about outside of IVF? Well, it does still impact fertility but we don't have those type of statistics that we do in IVF, but we do know it affects it. Now, when it comes to the diagnosis, as I mentioned, some people may just have pelvic pain, and that could be due to endometriosis, that could be just painful periods. So a lot of times we don't think about hydrostopping just because someone's having pelvic pain. It's usually after the fact when we find it, we go, oh, that makes sense why they were having that pelvic pain. So rarely is this diagnosed because someone just comes in for abdominal pain and we think, oh, it's probably a hydrosalpinx. The way it's usually diagnosed is incidentally, 
when someone's just doing their normal workup for fertility and does a hysterosalpingogram, also known as HSG, and we find that the tube swells up like a big sausage and we go, oh, there's a hydrosalpinx. That being said, you can diagnose them with other methods, such as transvaginal ultrasound, HSG, laparoscopy, and really any type of imaging modality, such as MRI or CT. What's interesting is that some of the modalities won't catch it because the tube isn't swollen. So a lot of times we'll have a patient going through IVF, and we don't see a hydrosalpinx on ultrasound, but then halfway through the stimulation, when her body starts making more fluids and the uterus is making more fluids, it starts to swell up and then the hydrosalpinx is completely apparent. So that means just because you've had the normal ultrasound does not mean you don't have a hydrosalpinx. And so the best test for this, in my opinion, is going to be the HSG because that's really going to show you with filling up the tubes with a dye if those tubes are swollen or not. Laparoscopy is just as good, but that's more invasive, and that's why I wouldn't recommend that as the first choice and would recommend an HSG. Matter of fact, I just had a patient recently who was seen at a very qualified clinic, with this clinic seeing patients from all over the world and highly respected, and they thought she had a hydrosalpinx based off of ultrasound. And when I reviewed it and looked at the images, I disagreed and thought it was a cyst or potentially scarring due to prior surgery. So we actually did an HSG, is what I recommended, and we ruled it out. And she did not have a hydrosalpinx. But the point is, even at this highly regarded medical center, an radiologist was diagnosing a hydrosalpinx off of the ultrasound and was incorrect. And that's why I feel the hysterosalpingogram is probably one of the best techniques to rule it in or out. Now, if you know you have a hydrosalpinx, you don't want to do an HSG because you can actually push the infection into the pelvis and that will actually create more problems. So you don't ever confirm that you have an hydrosalpinx with HSG, but you can rule out one with an HSG. Again, the reason you wouldn't want to rule in is because if you already know you have it, then why would you cause that harm? Just go to surgery. There are not a lot of treatment options when it comes to a hydrosalpinx. Now, if you're having pain, like salpingitis, then they may put you on pain medications like they're treating PID, pelvic inflammatory disease, and wait till it calms down. But if you have a hydrosalpinx and it's causing pain or you are having problems with infertility, really the only treatment is to remove the fallopian tube. This procedure is called a salpingectomy. Although this is an invasive procedure where they have to put a camera in your belly and then remove the tube with two other pokes on your belly, it's overall a minimally invasive procedure. The risk is very low, and because of the small size of the fallopian tube, it can be removed through the main port where the camera was, reducing the amount of incisions you have to have. When it comes to pain, it can potentially relieve you from your pain and it can have a better quality of life. Even if you're not having pain, by removing it, you at least prevent the future problem of having pain where you may develop salpingitis, which is inflammation of the fallopian tube. From the fertility standpoint, you'll benefit by increasing your chances of success because you'll be reducing the miscarriage rate and increasing the success rate of IVF by removing the affected tubes. So the question comes up is, why? Why is this even an issue? I mean, aren't we bypassing the fallopian tubes anyways? 
And the answer is yes, we are. But the problem is, is that tube that's filled with that fluid is toxic to the embryos. And so when that fluid works its way back into the uterus, it's going to be toxic to the embryos and will lead to things like miscarriages and even preventing implantation. This hostile environment is what causes your pregnancy chances to reduce by 50%. Patients who have a history of ectopics or even PID when undergoing surgery may have their tube removed by their surgeon because they know they're going through fertility treatment and if they see a hydrosalpinx, they would remove it to help improve your chances. But removing a fallopian tube is not something that is something you want to do. I mean, at that point, you're losing your tube. I mean, that's your way of getting pregnant. So it's a very scary concept to remove a fallopian tube to improve your chances of getting pregnant. Now, what if you have one tube that has a hydrosalpinx and the other one doesn't? Well, then there's no re- reason you have to remove that other tube. But that doesn't mean that tube doesn't have the potential to develop into a hydrosalpinx because whatever infection or cause caused the first one theoretically should be on the other fallopian tube as well. Now, I've talked about this in other podcasts because infections don't decide to only go left or right when they go in your uterus. They'll go both ways. Just like if you have endometriosis or infection in your pelvis, it's not going to just stick to one side of your body. And so, although you can leave that fallopian tube, there is a higher chance in the future you may develop infection in that tube, such as salpingitis, or even it may develop into another hydrosalpinx just like your other tube did. So there are some surgeons who would recommend removing both, but I would always caution someone about this because it depends your situation. If you're someone who makes tons of eggs, gets tons of embryos, you really have nothing to worry about. Worst case, you just do IVF again. But if you're someone who has a very hard time getting pregnant, then you only make a few eggs and your chances of IVF are not that great Removing that tube really does put you only in the IVF treatment realm and you're not a great candidate for it. And so I would be hesitant to remove a tube if it didn't absolutely need to be removed, regardless if there may be disease in that tube or not. And that's important to understand because when you leave that tube, you do have a higher risk of an ectopic pregnancy because the hydrosalpings show there must be some infection history in the past. And if that infection history is also on the other fallopian tube, that can then lead to ectopics in the future. If you look just at the women who have tubal disease and fertility, there's approximately a 20% chance that they have a hydrosalpinx. So as you can see, it's not a very common thing, but in the groups who have tubal disease, it is actually more common than you would think. One thing I'd like to mention which is in the diagnosis of hydrosalpings, is when you should be sometimes concerned if you have one. Anyone who has repetitive failures with implantation IVF who has not had their tubes tested should do an HSG. If you're someone going through a frozen embryo transfer and every time you keep developing fluid inside your cavity, even after you start progesterone, you should check a histosalpingogram because that fluid could be coming from that fallopian tube. Even if your fallopian tube has been removed before, there's still a portion of tube there that can still 
put fluid into the uterus. So just because you've had your tubes removed doesn't mean you can't still have a portion that has a hydrosalping. So again, if you're having problems with implantation or fluid developing in the cavity, that's another time that you should look into this. If you're someone who's worried about having the hydrosalpings, as we discussed, go get a histosalpingogram and you can rule it out. If you're someone who has a hydrosalpings, you need to talk to your doctor and talk about their options. As I always say, there are ways I do things, there are other ways to do things. But really, when it comes to this, the only option really is removing the tubes. But your situation may be different where a surgeon may feel it's not as significant. And so that's why you always need to talk to your doctor and find out what they think is best and between you and your doctor, make the best decision. Hopefully this will be helpful to some of you who have either had this or are wondering about this. And as always, if you love this show, please tell everyone about us. Give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast medium. As always, I look forward to talking to you again next week on Talk About Fertility Tuesday.